Well, thank you very much for coming tonight. I give you a warm welcome and hopefully not the cold, uh, but uh, certainly we give you a very warm welcome. We will start tonight by uh, standing to sing the words of 642, 642, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and be arising to sing after the introduction. i 
just ask for the Lord's blessing on us, shall we pray? Our Father, we thank Thee that we can meet like this and take these words on our lips, but the reality is a challenge to us to trust and obey. We thank Thee for Thy Word, the living Word of God, and the lessons that it gives to us, and we thank Thee that we are here to be fed tonight from it. And we just pray that the lessons that come from it to us will be a challenge. And not only will we be hearers, but we'll be doers of the word and put into practice that which we have been challenged and that which we have heard. We would pray for each and every one in the room here tonight. And we would ask that we be blessed by being here. We pray especially for Stuart that it will give him a, a blessing as he seeks to teach God's word to us tonight. We thank thee for taking him here safely to us uh, and journeying mercies on the road. We remember those who would have loved to have been out here tonight and for various reasons cannot manage and we pray that there will be with them also. We ask all of this and ask for a blessing to be on us in the name of thy Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> now, once again, thank you very much for coming tonight. A lot of our own number are a bit under the weather with all these bugs that are going around. So it's good to see the hall well filled with visitors. So thank you very much for making the effort on a cold, damp night like this. Uh, it's often just tempting to stay in. So thank you very much for doing that. It's appreciated. Uh, just one or two uh, announcements. Stuart Gillespie is with us for this weekend. So he will speak tonight. Uh, and then he will speak uh, on the gospel tomorrow morning and then ministry uh, tomorrow evening uh, in the hall here at the usual times. Uh, Fountain Hall have their monthly ministry meeting. It's on the 28th of January at 7.30 and the speaker is Robert Miller of Mayfield. And our next uh, meeting in this series is on February the 10th where we seem to be intent on plundering the southwest with Bill Steve Lee from Ayr. Uh, for that for that meeting, February the tenth. So, before without making many more ado, we'll sing two verses of eight hundred and twenty-six, and then I'll hand over to Stuart. I'm a pilgrim and a stranger. Rough and thorny is the road, often in the midst of danger, but it leads to God. Clouds and darkness oft distress me. Great and many are my foes. Anxious cares and thoughts oppress me, but my Father knows. We'll sing verses one and two of eight hundred and twenty-six, standing to sing if you're able. <clears throat>
with you in Aberdeen. Thanks for inviting me up. I didn't choose the hymns, but they are very appropriate and quite helpful uh, to help me decide where to speak from. So, um, if you have your Bibles, uh, perhaps we can open up in Second Corinthians and uh, chapter number twelve. Chapter twelve. a bit there in those hymns about, about suffering and about burdens, about trials, and uh, we shall delve into that subject at the end of 2 Corinthians. I don't know if you've studied 2 Corinthians much yourself. If you have, you've probably found what I have found, uh, which is that it is a very difficult uh, letter to divide up into sections. Um, someone has said that it is the most difficult of Paul's epistles because it's the most epistle-like of Paul's epistles. In other words, he writes it just as you would write a letter. And you don't really sit down and write letters uh, in a way that maybe you find Romans, for example, written, which is all about the gospel. And you can follow the theme of the gospel right through it. And you know that, well, it starts off with, with man's fall and ruin and sin that goes on to uh, God's grace and uh, justification by faith and sanctification by the Spirit and it all logically flows. Well, Second Corinthians isn't quite like that. I would suggest to you that there is a theme that runs through it and it is the theme of God's sovereignty in human suffering and the way that he comforts uh, his people in suffering. In fact, I would suggest to you that the whole of the epistle is in essence an exposition or an explanation of one verse. That is verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And I would suggest to you that you could read the whole of the epistle in the light of that verse. And you could come to understand what it means for God to have those names, those titles. Because God doesn't have titles in an arbitrary way, they mean something. And uh, what does it mean for him to show mercy? What does it mean for him to comfort? How does he comfort his people? And I would suggest to you, we'll maybe touch on it in a minute or two, but I would suggest to you that he comforts his people by at least seven means in this epistle of Second Corinthians. That might be our subject tomorrow, I think, actually, maybe. So verse number 1 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. Uh, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure... Through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted 
above measure. For this thing <coughs> I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What a remarkable statement that the divine strength is complete. It finds its completeness in human weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches in necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Let's just ask for God's help. Our Father, we do just take a moment uh, before Thee. We thank our Father of our weakness and we are encouraged our Father again this evening to know that Thy strength is uh, perfected in it. We thank our Father of need uh, that will be known uh, to Thee. It's not known to us and our Father we are not able to meet that need. But we thank Thee our Father that Thou art. And we pray, Father, for the grace of the Lord Jesus to give help. And most our need, Father, how great our need is. And we do just rest upon thee, our Father. We pray for help. We pray, our Father, that in what is said and read, that thy people would be helped. And we do pray, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. As we do ask our Father for this, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So the Apostle opens up this uh, uh, penultimate chapter of 2 Corinthians uh, with a reference to visions and revelations of the Lord. And I suppose we are at the beginning of another new year, aren't we? Uh, almost halfway through the first month, mind you. And uh, perhaps, like myself, you've been to a conference or two. And uh, um, perhaps, like myself, uh, you've heard quite a lot of things you've got a to-do list already. Uh, well, here's a, an encouraging piece of ministry, I think, in Second Corinthians chapter 12, and maybe all, if we do, are involved in uh, some kind of service for the Lord, as I'm sure we are. Uh, here is something, perhaps, that might inspire each of us, that as we come to uh, something uh, that will help God's people and that will help us in the difficulties of life, it will have to go beyond uh, a mere list of things to do. I used to get very discouraged as I came to meetings at times because it seemed that every meeting that I came to I was told of something else that wasn't quite right and I found it very discouraging. Well, here is a, a ministry from the Apostle Paul that would lift us above that. It is a ministry that is a bit like the upper room ministry of the Lord Jesus. It's a ministry, I remember David Newell describing the upper room ministry of the Lord Jesus as being above street level. I thought that was good. Well, here's ministry here in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, and it's above street level. It comes, in fact, from the very uh, throne room of God. It comes from paradise. It comes from heaven. And it, its content is a content of the visions and the revelations of the Lord Jesus. Now, I know of nothing else that will sustain me or sustain you in your service for Christ, in your suffering, in your difficulties and in your trial than, than, than this. That a, a real personal vision and revelation of the Lord Jesus. You see, as I look back over my life, I can see that I've rested on all sorts of things to sustain me. And they, they've failed. Sometimes I look to myself to sustain me. 
Sometimes I I look to social connections and relationships with others to sustain me. Sometimes I even get myself into a rut and I I, I think that service is self-sustaining. And maybe the Christian life has as its content service. And you hear preachers coming away with it, saved to serve. You're not, you know. You're not saved to serve. The angels were created to serve. God's got something bigger for you than just service. That's part of it. But he's got something far greater than service for his people to be like Christ. Uh, And sometimes we can rest in all of these different things. And actually what sustains us is what sustains the Apostle Paul himself. Even he needs sustained in his service. And what sustains him is a vision and revelation of the Lord. I don't know how long this ministry uh, will last in your mind. Uh, I was told in the car coming up that the last ministry, my brother couldn't remember, although I think he was in Australia right enough. Um, uh, will, will the ministry tonight, I wonder, last 14 minutes? Or, or 14 days, that's optimistic isn't it? 14 months whatever happened to the Apostle Paul here in chapter 12 lasted, it endured for 14 years there was something so personal and so powerful and so practicable and so passionate in what he experienced at the hands of the Lord Jesus that it endured for 14 years now there's a ministry worth having you notice that he describes it as a ministry that uh, consists of visions and revelations visions and revelations the word of God of course is full of visions and revelations of the Lord isn't it it's full of visions maybe we could say of a vision that it's a glimpse of a glory not fully grasped because the word of God is full of these kind of visions things that we we get a little look into but even sometimes the people who get the vision they don't fully grasp it but they're overawed by it you've got Daniel of course his book is full of visions and and you find him prostrate at one point and mystified as to what it means Ezekiel is is, is struck dumb for seven days as he, he meditates on the vastness of what he sees and then there's these revelations Revelations, grasping a glory maybe, but it's rarely glimpsed. A revelation is an unveiling, isn't it? It's something for us to understand. And as you go through the word of God, uh, God's people are so often sustained by these very personal, that's the word I want to use first of all, something very personal. This grace that God gives to uh, uh, Paul here in chapter 12 is first and foremost personal. It's a personal experience of the Lord Jesus. And nothing will sustain me like a personal experience of Christ. We've been in Newcomlock for 17 years, uh, which makes me feel very old. One of my boys has just joined the Polis, which makes me feel even older. You've heard the one about, you know, when Polismen start to look young. <laughs> what about when the Polismen's your son, you know? Oh dear, anyway. Right, so anyway, that's by the by. But 17 years ago when we went to Newcomlet, we wondered where there was no gospel meetings on. We decided, well, where where do you you start preaching the gospel? So we decided to look at John's gospel. And we we looked at the seven I am sayings of of John's gospel. Lovely way to see John's gospel. I'm sure you've looked at them yourself. And uh, each Sunday night for seven nights we thought of those I am sayings. But you know, let's say for example you were to invite someone, uh, maybe like that man there in, in John's Gospel, uh, got your Bible, fl- flick over, let me just show you this uh, little kind of thought here that we have in John chapter number 9. You remember John chapter number 9? <coughs> and uh, you remember that the, the, the man there is at, uh, just in the precincts of the temple, isn't he? 
and uh, he's a man born blind and you know I, I couldn't help but thinking that you know whilst it took me maybe seven weeks to, to work through the I am sayings of the Lord Jesus I wonder you know if we invited maybe somebody like him John Knight maybe to Holborn up to Newcomlock and said I, I, I'd like to give you seven Sundays to preach on the seven I am sayings of the Lord Jesus I wonder if you would get through them all I think you would get stuck at one stuck at one verse number 2 of, of John 9 and his disciples asked him saying master who did sin this man or his parents that he was born blind verse 6 and he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay and, and he said go wash in the pool of Siloam which is by interpretation sent and he went his way therefore and washed and came seeing you see here's a man and I think if you were to ask him to come and, and preach on the I am sayings of the Lord Jesus I don't think he would be able to get past that one I am the light of the world it would just be it was just so special it was so intimate to him it was so precious to him it transformed his life because in that feast of tabernacles in which John 9 is set the priest went down to the pool of Siloam day after day uh, took his silver pitcher filled it up with water from the pool of Siloam went back up to the uh, temple and poured out the water at the side of the altar and he recited the words of Psalm 118 send now thy salvation O Lord send now thy salvation and he poured out this water and it was just water and there wasn't any salvation and yet the Lord Jesus sends the man into the pool of Siloam to wash his eyes. And what does he find? He finds, send thou thy salvation. And it transforms his life. And the light shines into that perpetual darkness, that blackness, that hopelessness that had been his life. Upside down his life was transformed. By that one I am. I am the light of the world. Meant something to him. Get what I'm getting at? It was a personal revelation of the Lord Jesus to him. He couldn't have spoken on that as one of them, could he? Well, I mean, he couldn't have got over it in a night and 45 minutes. That was his life. That was his testimony. That was his personal experience of the Lord Jesus. Some time ago, I was speaking in Ayrshire, and the brother got up and had a lovely word in Psalm 23. And from Psalm 23, he looked at the titles of Jehovah. Maybe you've looked at them over the years. There's many of them. There's more than seven, you know. I used to think there were seven, maybe the 14, maybe 21. There's dozens of them. And he looked at them and illustrated them from Psalm 23. Obviously, the good shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, he saw many of them there. The Lord my righteousness, he saw, and so forth. The Lord shall provide. Maketh me uh, to lie down by the green pastures, he restores my soul. And I think he went through maybe 7 or 14 of them in 45 minutes. That's very good though. But can you imagine maybe bringing Abraham for example. And asking him to speak on the I am sayings of the Lord Jesus. How many do you think he would get through in 45 minutes? <laughs> I think maybe one. Just that one. That one that meant something very very special to him as he was up there on Mount Moriah. And he took his son... <coughs> 
A son old enough to carry the wood in his back and to walk up a mountain with his father. And he, that, that boy laid upon the altar and his, his, his knife was, was raised above the boy. And all of the, all of the turmoil of his soul at that moment. The turmoil in his mind between the, the logic, the pure logic of a God who had given him promises, promises that were centered in Isaac, and yet now he was to put Isaac on the altar and, and he was to slay Isaac. He, he began to rationalize it. He thought, well, well, maybe God would bring him back from the dead. No mention of that in Genesis 32, 22, but anyway, that, that's what he thought. And then the, the emotion of it, the feelings of it, when he's bad enough when your children are unwell but, but to have this injunction to put your son on the altar and, and to put a knife through him and then at that moment that revelation of that divine title the Lord shall provide Jehovah Jireh that meant something very special didn't it to Abraham something he would never get over something that transformed his experience in the mountain transformed his life gave him a fresh understanding of the love and compassion and power and authority and trustworthiness of his God and he saw it worked out in my mind. never get by it would he now you can look back you see I know you can you can look back over the last year maybe the last couple of years and, and there are certain revelations aren't they certain experiences you've had I trust you have or maybe you've invited folks to come to a whole burn and, and they've brought something that has been of, of special help to you and you can look back and you can see there was a verse that the Lord spoke to me in alright or that brother he brought a, a particular word that was a particular help mind you if they don't bring a particular help don't have them back <laughs> and they brought something that was really special and really helpful and, and that sustained you I can look back at, at, at those kind of times and I'm sure you can as well verses that mean something very precious to you don't want to go off at tangents but I remember a particular time in my life that was very difficult uh, was facing something very specific a particular problem actually it was facing me on the Monday it was now Friday and I remember in part, as part of my reading uh, Isaiah 41 verse 10 was the verse that I was reading through as I was reading through Isaiah at that point Isaiah 41 verse 10 spoke to me very much on the Friday, fear not, I am with thee, be not dismayed, I am your God. I will help you, I will strengthen you, yea, I will hold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Well, that's good. But you can read a lot in your verse, can't you? On Saturday, we verse on the calendar that day, just, you know, the daily verse of the calendar, Isaiah 41, verse 10. Well, that's good. Fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, I am your God, I will help you, I will strengthen you. Yea, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. On the Sunday... I put in my trousers and put my hand in my pocket. You'll appreciate that as a married man that you never pull any money out of your pockets. But I did pull out a piece of paper. And on it was a little verse written. I don't remember when I wrote it, but I wrote it at some point, put it in the pocket. Isaiah 41, verse 10 it was. Fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed. I am your God, I will help you, I will strengthen you. Yea, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. And so there are some verses that I'm sure mean something very precious to you. Maybe like that, that divine title that meant something very precious to uh, Abraham. Or, or that I am saying that meant something very precious to that uh, man in John 9. Or, or, or what about Isaiah 46 and, 
Um, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah 46, or better, Isaiah 43 even, I should say, Isaiah 43, you know, you read through Isaiah 43 and verse number 2, you get to verse number 2, when thou passest through the waters I will be with thee, through, thy, through the rivers they shall not overflow thee, when thou walkest through the fire thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, I can read that and I can claim that. You read that verse back into something, for example, like Daniel chapter number 3. You read that into the experience of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You read that into the experience of those three boys who who do what is right and who take a stand, who know what the word of God says, that thou shalt not make any craven image of anything in the heavens above, the earth below, the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down and, and serve them nor worship them. And they know the word of God says that and so they take a stand and they do what is right and and there is nothing like the truth to get you into trouble. And they end up in the fiery furnace and there's Nebuchadnezzar and he takes out his pocket calculator, you remember. One plus one plus one is definitely coming up as three. And yet there's four in there. And what is more, one of them is like unto the Son of God. Do you not think that a verse, for example, like Isaiah 43, verse number 2, would mean something very special and very particular? Uh, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have an understanding of that verse that I'll never have. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers thou shalt not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Do you see how the word of God, although it contains maybe a general revelation for us all to enjoy, that there is something that will sustain you and I very practically and very powerfully and very personally in the experiences through which we pass. Well, visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, my little thought is uh, for <coughs> uh, this, this evening uh, has to do really with the purpose of it. And I want you to notice that not only is this working of God, this grace of God in this section, not only is it very personal, but can I use a word? Um, I trust we'll explain it. It's a word, sovereign. Sovereign. Uh, in other words, here is a thought. Um, you've gone through difficulties. The apostle is going through difficulties. He's very general about them. Uh, we know a little bit about them from verse number 7. He says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, uh, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So he was going through something that was very real. Uh, It might have been an illness. It was a thorn in the flesh. And uh, that, of course, is an experience that I'm sure... Uh, we can identify with in the past and if you can't in the past you will in the future, guaranteed and as you go through the difficulties of the Christian life and you collect these thorns in the flesh the trials and problems and testings of the Christian life people will say things to you Uh, they will say things like um, you'll get through it or they'll say worse things 
Uh, things like it's part and parcel of life. Or sometimes you've just to accept that, you know, all the kind of, of things that we say. Maybe we say it just because we're nervous, I don't know. But in this section, I want you to notice that in the trials and difficulties of life, that we can look for more than just being sustained through it. But we can look for being profited by it. And that as you and I pass through the trials of the Christian life, we are under the hand of a sovereign God. He's in control. By that I do not mean that he is simply in control when things are going well. I mean he's in control. Full stop. Absolutely. Even when things don't go well. Let me show you some of the things, one thing that I was mistaught when I was a young Christian. Uh, it was the story of Daniel chapter number 6. Apologies if you've heard me on this before. I think it's a great illustration of the sovereignty of God in the trials of life. Daniel 6. <coughs> There's Daniel in the lion's den. Remember? And I was taught as a youngster, uh, maybe at Sunday school or whatever, remember seeing pictures of it in a Bible book, um, that God is great in Daniel chapter number 6 because God was able to deliver Daniel from the lion's den. What do you think of that for theology? Hmm? Now, I think it's rubbish. So I think I'll show you. In Daniel chapter number 6, you remember there's a conspiracy against uh, uh, Daniel. So much of this chapter follows. It's a pattern. It's a parable. It's a type of the Lord Jesus. You'll find that Daniel, for example, is taken from the upper room where he's praying. You'll remember there's a conspiracy against him that he's delivered not because of anything wrong that he's done, but because of the envy of others. He's delivered to a reluctant judge, to uh, Darius, uh, who is forced, in a sense, his hands are tied by the laws of the Medes and the Persians, and he is delivered... uh, over into the lion's den where a stone will be rolled and a seal will be placed. It's all pictures, of course, of the person of Christ. But, in Daniel 6.16, the king commanded and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spoke and said to Daniel, Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. So if your view of God in in Daniel chapter number 6 is that our God is big enough to get us out of the trials and testings and difficulties of life, can I suggest to you that your understanding of the God of heaven has not advanced since the days of Darius? Because even Darius had the sneaking suspicion that just maybe the God of heaven could do something to help Daniel. Even Darius understood that perhaps the omnipotence of the Jehovah that Daniel worshipped would be sufficient to undo the decrees of a mere man. Don't have a small view of your God. I know God can do that. So did Darius. So did Darius. And so he puts him into the lion's den. Verse number 22. My God hath sent his... Or verse 21. Then said Daniel to the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him. <coughs> commanded that they should take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. And then the story stops, doesn't it? It doesn't. 
And the king commanded, uh, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, their lions had the mastery of them, and broke all their bones in pieces or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Now, I do understand why they did stop the story there at Sunday school. <laughs> You've ever explained that, do I understand that? But keep on reading. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. My grace is sufficient for you. What does that mean? It means that God is sovereign over suffering. It means God is in control. It means, yes, God could bring out Daniel from the lion's den, but that's nothing because Darius could put him in. And if Darius could put him in, of course God can bring him out. That is nothing. But look at the sovereignty of God. There are two things I don't understand about the sovereignty of God, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Number one is sovereignty, number two is God. So my understanding of it is very incomplete. But I do understand this, that my God is so much a God and he's so sovereign that he could ordain, control and order the events and experiences of Daniel chapter number 6 to be, number one, a type of the work and person of Jesus Christ in betrayal, in judgment, in death, in burial, in resurrection and in evangelism. Secondly, that he is able to use these experiences not just to rescue Daniel, but to destroy all opposition to Daniel. And thirdly, he is in such sovereign control of all things that he is able to use these experiences of Daniel 6 to evangelize, if you like, or to declare the glory of his name throughout the whole world and to use Darius to do it. Would you believe it? You wouldn't have done it that way, would you? I wouldn't have. We'd never have thought of it. But he does. He grabs control of the Babylonian internet, if you like, and uses Darius as his spokesman to declare the glory and sovereignty of the God of Daniel. Can God get him out of the lion's den? I'll tell you, I do believe. I get in trouble for this, you know, down in Ayrshire. But I do believe that God is big enough to put him into the lion's den. Well, in 2 Corinthians 12 then, with those kind of texts of the Word of God perhaps in our ear, we understand that as, as the Apostle Paul looks at his thorn in the flesh, he might expect and he certainly receives something more than merely deliverance from the trial. But God is going to use that trial for his blessing and for God's glory. There was a little word I didn't quite get. I don't know how much time. I was told I can take as long as I like. I've only been told that once. I've never told that a second. I wouldn't know. There was a little word I didn't understand, you know, when, when, I, when I read through this. Well, lots of words I didn't understand. The point of it. There was one, one little word that stuck in my mind that I really wondered what it meant as I read down through this section <coughs> for the first time. Let me show you. It's in verse number 2, and you'll read it and you'll say, oh, he's just stupid, that's why I didn't understand that. But look, verse 2. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. But what does that word mean? In. In. That's more what? What does it mean? I knew a man in Christ. 
What does that mean? I mean, is that not a little redundant word? A man in Christ. You either know a man or you don't know a man. Does it matter? Is he saying that man was saved? Well, I assume so. But why that little word, in Christ? Of what significance does it have in this section? And then I got down to another little bit I didn't understand. Verse number 7. And says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now here's something else. How am I going to explain this to the folks in Holborn? Above measure. Above what measure? Well, I mean, you know, if you're going to be exalted above measure, you have to know, well, what is the measure of it? Above what measure? When I was younger, uh, which according to my boys was a very long time ago, when I was younger, preachers used to speak about a thing called positional truth. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, I wonder if it has the same effect on you as it had on me. It mystified me. I was like, what are they talking about? I could never quite understand what they meant by positional truth. And then as time went on, I thought, maybe, maybe I don't understand what they're saying about positional truth, because they don't either. <laughs> it was a sneaking suspicion. And then I, 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 I came to a third conclusion, which was that I suspect that some people think there's two kinds of Bible truth. Real stuff and stuff that's theoretical, and they call it positional because they can't quite understand it. Right? That's why I think, I think that's what they're talking about here real stuff and kid on stuff. And before you dismiss that, I was speaking at a conference a number of years ago on positional truth in Ephesians chapter number two. You know, about how the fact that we're raised up together and seated together in heavenly places in, in, in Christ Jesus, that's ultimate positional truth because. You know, physically you're not sat there. And having spoken about the implications of that, the new life that we have in Christ, the access to heaven, the special relationship with God, positional things. The brother got up after me and he said this, he said, uh, well it's good to hear about all of those things that are ours in Christ, but in the real world. <laughs> I'm like, I'm right, some of them do think this. They think that there's real truth, and then there's kidon truth, there's positional truth. Some people think that. It's wrong. It's wrong. Let me say that. Wrong. What does positional truth mean? Well, I'm going to take you back to Romans chapter 5 because in Romans chapter 5 the Apostle Paul explains positional truth for I think the first time in, in the New Testament. Maybe the only time that it's explained. Let me show you. It's in the context of something that has to be positional, which is justification by faith. Because uh, there are certain verses that I can take ownership with without embarrassing myself here. And I could say before, to, 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 to the folks here at Aberdeen that, you know, in me that's in my flesh is no good thing. I could take ownership of that from Romans 7. And I know that's true. I do know that's true. Dead in trespasses and sins. Yep, I can take ownership of that one as well. But there are some things that, you know, as I look at myself and I, and I say, well, the Word of God says that I'm justified. That is, I'm, de- I'm righteous. or declared righteous, actually. But I, I don't know that I could pass that one off from the folks that know me back in you come that Righteous? God writes righteous above me? And so the Apostle has to explain this in Romans chapter number 5. How it is these things can be true. So if you come with me to Romans 5 verse number 10. He says, For if 
Romans 5.10 For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, I hope you've thought about this question over the, over the years. I, I've been asked this question by a five-year-old, so I hope you've thought of the question. Um, it's a bit hard to explain the answer to a five-year-old mind. How is it? How is it that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross at Calvary actually affects me? That was then and I'm now. How is that connection made? How is it that I can come into the benefit of that? I mean, that was a long time ago, the Lord Jesus, wasn't it, Dad? And the cross was a long time ago, and, 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 and how does that affect me today? Good question! It's not a silly question, it's a Romans 5 question. And so the apostle says, listen, I'm telling you that you come into the benefits of justification by faith by a means you've never thought of. You thought, Romans 3, that you kept rules and regulations and that gave you a right standing before God. Makes sense, doesn't it? Do good, you are good. That makes sense. I have to admit it, it makes sense. As long as you don't examine it too deeply and then you realise there's a whole lot of things you didn't do. And of course the law by the law comes along to sin. So uh, I'm going to tell you, says the apostle, about another way by which God can make you right. Uh, even a righteousness or the righteousness of God Romans 3.22 even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe there is no difference so God is able because of Christ to declare me righteous not because he looks at me and says Stuart you've kept all those commandments you've lived a good life you've done well but rather because of Jesus Christ God looks at me and he declares that I am without guilt no condemnation righteous before me Fit for heaven. Great, but how does it happen? To explain it, the apostle takes us to Adam. Romans 5 and 12. Now here I think is one of the most misunderstood of all of the sections in Romans. <coughs> Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for the all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one, that's Adam, many be dead, that's you and me, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. There are some things that are positional truth even before Christ died on the cross. Uh, the fact that in Adam we sinned, and the fact that you and I will die. Now there are three main ways of interpreting these uh, three, four verses of Romans 5. Uh, you could look at this section and you could say that what the Apostle Paul is saying is that just like Adam sinned, we also shall sin. And just as Adam died, we also shall die. That's called Pelagianism. And it's a gross error of the Word of God. But it's increasing in popularity. I've heard it twice on the platform. It's wrong. It's wrong according to Romans 5, 13. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. So even people who have never been declared as having sinned, they will die. He gives the example of those who died pre-law. There are other examples that might be more imminent to us in our own Gentile day and our own period of time. You'll be aware, I'm sure, that since 1967, 8 million unborn children have been slaughtered deliberately in our land. Wicked generation that we have. No better than the days of Moloch. 8 million. That's not even the ones that died by natural causes. 8 million we killed, murdered. Did they sin? Personally, most of them incapable of any decision, so far as we can tell, and yet they died. And so, death will come upon you, irrespective of whether you actively sin or not, because of something Adam did. That's very important. Point number one. <coughs> Second way of interpreting this is to say that Adam is uh, a corporate head. Or perhaps a representative man. Now that's true. And I'm not knocking that. That is true. And you'll hear that. And that's fine. But I would suggest to you it doesn't fully explain the section. The fact that Adam is the corporate head of the human race. Or that he's a representative man. Does not explain how it is that sin passes from Adam to us. Think about it. 1945. You could go to Auschwitz. And there was Rudolf Hoss. Hanging from the gallows that he made. He was the first commandant of Auschwitz. They caught him. They hung him. A few years later, in the 1960s, Adolf Eichmann, hanging from a gallows now in Jerusalem, tried for organising the transportation to Auschwitz, in which over 1 million, maybe 1.2 million Jews died. And when the instruction from Himmler came to cease uh, the transportation, he organised an extra one just for good measure. So they hung him. I don't have a problem with that, I have to say. But do we really think that every German should be put in the gallows? After all, Adolf Hitler was the corporate head, wasn't he? But we wouldn't impute sin to every single person in that nation, would we? We wouldn't see it as just. The problem with seeing Adam as being our corporate head or a representative is this there is, as they say, an elephant in the room we require imputation of sin on every single human being and the only person that could do that would be God and so we impute unrighteousness to God so I'm going to suggest to you that there's a third interpretation of this section that you and I have a real relationship with Adam that all of humanity flowed through Adam But uh, just as um, you and I are born by generation, that that puts us in a a very different uh, kind of scenario than Adam. You remember that Adam was made by creation, ab initio. Uh, Eve by formation, you and I by generation. And it specifically says there in the book of Genesis that God breathed into Adam the breath of lives. And so all lives flow through Adam. Now I'm in the perfect place to be able to explain the significance of that. Aberdeen, 1964. I don't know if any of you were around in 1964. You got into the medical books in 1964, Aberdeen. We, we were taught about it even in Glasgow. In 1964, there was an outbreak in Aberdeen of Salmonella typhimurium. 
very famous outbreak. And um, it was traced back to a tinning plant in South America, uh, to a factory producing Frey Bentos corned beef. The corned beef ended up in the William Lowe supermarket in Aberdeen of all places. And from that tin of corned beef, 400 people were infected. Now, I was taught in Glasgow, and I was told in Glasgow, that only in Aberdeen could 400 people be infected from one tin of corned beef. I don't know what I meant by that, but that's what I was taught. <coughs> that did mystify people for some time. 400 out of one tin of corned beef. Well, you know, that's amazing. Even for Aberdeen. But I'll tell you what happened. What happened was this. They took that one tin of corned beef, and they put it through a slicer in William Lowe supermarket, and they never cleaned the slicer. And so people were dropping with salmonella typhimurium, uh, even who were vegetarians. <laughs> I mean, you have to get out of corn. Well, they, you see, everything, once the, once the slicer was infected, everything that went through that slicer was also infected. And so you got 400 hits out of your one slice of corn. 400. Adam, my life, flows through him. We understand a bit more of that today, don't we? Because we can, we can think of it in physical terms. It's more than that, by the way. But you know, we know that genetically we are all linked, aren't we? We're all linked. Ultimately, God created one man, one woman, and all of the genes ultimately are traceable back to them with a few deletions and insertions and a wee bit jiggling about. The same is true of life, whatever that life is. Not fully explained, but God breathed it into Adam and it's transferred. And therefore, because of my relationship, that's the word relationship, because of my relationship with Adam, I have inherited a life that is infected. He sinned. What he passes on is contaminated by sin and therefore it is doomed to die. Not because I have an, an arbitrary God. Not because I have a God who takes it and imputes it to everyone. No. Because this is part and parcel of the essential nature of creation. It was in Adam and it was contaminated in Adam. And therefore it is passed on to every single human being. The significance of the virgin birth by the way. You see it? Positional truth is relationship truth. Because of my relationship with Adam, certain things are true. Now, in Romans 5, the Apostle says, that's how you receive salvation. Relationship. It's not that you died at the cross. It's not that you repeat the work of the cross. Not at all. Uh, Christ finished that work, never to be repeated. Uh, uh, But because you and I have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way that you receive sin and judgment and condemnation from Adam because of your relationship with him and death, because you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, you receive righteousness and life and salvation. It's relationship. And the only thing you see that saves me is my relationship with the Lord Jesus. First, verse 15 of Romans 5. But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one man many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. That relationship with the Lord Jesus. Uh, verse 11, not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's because I have a relationship. That's positional truth. Relationship truth. Better word, isn't it? Relationship truth. I've got a connection with the Lord Jesus. Now, 
That's a long road for a shortcut, isn't it? But Second Corinthians 12. Here's the purpose of the Apostle Paul's trial. I am not saying um, by any manner of means that this is the purpose of all trial. I think uh, there are at least, as I say, seven of them in Second Corinthians. This is one of them. One of them. It may be relevant to where I am. It may, re- may be relevant to where you are. It may not be. <coughs> in his trial, God had permitted a messenger of Satan. So again, we see the sovereignty of God. God has not been overtaken by Satan. He is sovereign and in control. And in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to muffle me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Of course, he's above measure. It's above measure is the fact that he's in Christ. That's the measure. All that the Apostle Paul has, all that I have, all that you have, is what we have in Christ. And if ever I forget that, I'm exalted above measure. And that's when I fail. That's when I fall. When I start to rest and rely upon something else, or when I begin just to allow the sneaking suspicion that, you know, actually I'm quite a strong fellow. And I know that my mother said that it's all to do with the Nazarite vow. But you know what? I, I could maybe just play fast and loose with that vow and that hair and Maybe I could just let slip the secret, and even if it did get cut, yeah, you know what I've done? Carry gates on my back. <laughs> slew, slew a hundred with a jawbone of an ass. <laughs> even if they did cut me. Risk worth taking. When I get to that, then I fall. Doesn't matter how strong I am. Doesn't matter how gifted I am. Doesn't matter how many abilities I have doesn't matter even if I've done miracles and there's mention of that in chapters 11 and 12 it doesn't matter because I am only what I am in Christ that applies to justification applies to my righteousness applies to my salvation applies to my sanctification applies to my service it applies for getting through tonight the different message in the camera (laughs) it applies to getting through tonight It it applies to getting through next week Resting in his grace and drawing from those resources. That also, of course, is some of the most encouraging thing that I will ever learn in the service of God. That as you come to his service and you feel as perhaps we often feel empty. And you wonder indeed where it is that strength will ever come from. And you perhaps come like the Corinthians in chapter number 8 or the Macedonians I should say in chapter number 8 and uh, like them they are there in their weakness they're there in their trial they're there in their uh, suffering and their poverty and they come to a power verse 3 of, of 2 Corinthians 8 to their power I be a record ye and beyond their power <laughs> I love that beyond their power. where did they get the power from? beyond themselves and they came like the woman uh, in John 4 and they drew from a deeper well or, or like Isaac and they, and they found another well and they drew their resources and their strength from Christ and I would suggest to you that the whole of that section there of, of 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 that grace that is sufficient is the grace that might just bring the Apostle Paul back to the enjoyment of the truth that he had known and loved so long that all that he is and all that he can do is in Christ 
and that little exaltation above measure down it comes let's pray our father we do just come into thy presence we thank thee for thy word we thank our father of the riches of the word of God we thank thee our father that it is full of visions and revelations of the Lord Jesus we thank thee our father that thou art able to personally and powerfully and providentially uh, to order and ordain our lives in such a way that not only uh, do we know thee as the God who sustains us but as the God who is sovereign over all of the experiences of life and that thou art able to profit us and to prosper us and that thou art able our father to glorify thy name We thank thee, our Father, uh, for both the joyful and for the bittersweet experiences of Christian life. And we thank thee, our Father, that in all of them we can see the sovereign hand of a God who is in control. Oh, we so often, Father, (coughs) look at the storm and the wind and we, like Peter, uh, take our eyes off of the Lord and we sink. We pray, our Father, that we might always keep our eyes on him. We offer thanks, our Father. We pray for a blessing on the words that have been shared tonight. We pray for encouragement for us, thy people. And we do offer thanks, our Father, for practicable provision. We thank you for food that has been provided. And we do ask, our Father, these things in Jesus' name. after this